This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Ryan Morris, president at Mason Capital, founder of Belichka, and executive chairman at Software Motor Company that raised about $80 million. And this episode, we're mostly going to focus on being persistent in your fundraising process and how should very early stage companies start their fundraising very early on, basically from the beginning of the, of the company. And of course, we're going to touch on to software more company and specifically how did they manage to raise so much money. So Ryan, I'll ask you off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Mason Capital Partners and on software more company and on Belichka. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, well, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here and hopefully hopefully share some battle scars and some things I've learned over time with, uh, with your listeners. Um, but yeah, so I, I have a obviously a few different companies um, and the number that I've been involved with over time. Uh, but just kind of my personal quick background, I grew up in Toronto, uh, went to Cornell, and then now I've been in the Bay Area for about eight years. I kind of finally realized this is where all the, the nerds doing cool stuff are. So it's like uh, I found my people in the Bay Area. Um, but I, you know, just at a, at a personal level, I uh, some kind of important events through my early life that just briefly to tie up to where I'm doing now. Um, I learned about nuclear fusion when I was when I was 11, and so this was this pretty uh, amazing idea that you could use technology to solve all the world's energy problems and basically end pollution. And so I got really deep into kind of the physics and science and everything. And I had a very a very good lesson early on from my father that look, even if you're the best scientist in the world, you got to have resources to put behind big problems to solve mm-hmm. them. So that's really what business is ultimately about and capital. And so I, I got really into investing and I read all of Warren Buffett's letters, which I'd highly recommend, you know, anybody in, in business in general to read. Um, and so that, that was I don't know, probably 13 or something. Um, so I've had sort of a, a few different heroes that have been really helpful guiding through life. So uh, I would say Warren Buffett and Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, um, and then kind of this goal of fusion have been threads throughout my whole career. Um, I had, um, while I was an engineer in college, I took a couple years off of college to be, um, uh, to focus on athletics. So I was a, a national champion rower in high school. And then I switched to road cycling and got third in Canada in the time trial back when I was doing that many years ago, like 14, 15 years ago. But that whole, um, I was the guy who like never had even a summer internship or anything. <laughs> u- I had nothing useful on my resume when I graduated college because <laughs> it was like, oh, I was racing, you know, bikes or something. <laughs> so I, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, was never able to get hired out of college. Part- I-, I say it's because I'm Canadian and they need to do all these extra paperwork for the work visa <laughs> stuff. And it was it was 2008 after my master's, so not a great time to graduate. Oh yeah. Um, so it sort of forced me to be self-sufficient, I guess. And so I started a software company after, um, after college called video note and don't need to go into that, but, um, you know, with like no money and living on whatever, 300 bucks a month rent in Ithaca, New York for a year or two after I finished. So, um, so, so that was, that was kind of the beginning and and Maison Capital started at the beginning of 2009, which has kind of been like a investment vehicle for me to build companies basically, uh, that you frankly couldn't start from scratch even if you wanted to because they're like very high reliability industries or very deep science that takes 10 years to make a product. Mm-hmm. So what does Mason Capital do right now? What do you invest in? So we really, the last uh, six or seven years especially, 
um, we've focused on basically uh, where does exponential technology, so anything that sort of follows a Moore's Law kind of exponential price performance curve. Um, so now that's things like um, IoT, machine learning, um, anything that's sort of computing or communication driven. Um, where is that basically uh, invading the uh, traditional industrial world? So mm-hmm. you think about it, like the company we did previous to software motor company that I was um, was our biggest investment and I was exec chairman of was a company that did the the drivetrains for forklift trucks and that sounds kind of boring except for oh yeah trucks. forklift trucks are the original electric <laughs> vehicles and so the uh, the problems we had to solve there were you know eighty percent similar to solving it for an on road you know high tech you know sports car or something so it's um, there's there's basically uh, th- these step functions that are happening uh it's sort of like silicon valley is propagating outwards and once the technologies that are developed in silicon valley begin to be relevant in an industry like electric motors or vehicles that fundamentally haven't changed in many decades there's like an inflection point so it's a very disruptive change that's that's possible in a very good way um for the end users, not necessarily good for the incumbents that don't adapt, but that that's really what I focus on. So it's kind of a mix of like the old world and the new world. So I, I sort of describe it sometimes as grafting Silicon Valley into the Midwest. Right, 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 right. And the forklift stuff does sound boring. So we're going to shift away from that before our retention rates drop. So let's talk about this early stage investing. What do you, what would you recommend to early stage startup founders? And most of my listeners are early stage startup founders. What do you recommend them to do in the very beginning of their fundraising process? So when, when should they start doing fundraising and what should they do when they decide that, you know, it's time to start doing something in this field? Yeah. I mean, this, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go with this, but I would say the first most important thing is you have to have a problem that you care about because uh, it's really hard. Like there's no company ever that was created where it was just like easy, you know, everything happened the way you thought and it was, Mm -hmm. you know, smooth sailing kind of, there's always disruption. There's always things that are unpredictable and, and challenges, not necessarily setbacks, but just challenges that are, you know, really hard and, if something wasn't really hard, then it's kind of wouldn't be worth doing because there'd be a thousand other people doing it and then there'd be no competitive advantage. And, you know, by nature, you need a, a competitive or comparative advantage as a business to have a reason to exist. And, um, you know, you see this kind of thing happening in sort of like the app market. There's like a, literally millions of apps and um, it's very hard to differentiate yourself if, if you don't have something special. So I think, you know, the first thing is, you know, you if you as an entrepreneur you need to have a problem that you can really relate to that you're willing to like kind of go fight a war for in a sense and, uh, and put yourself out there and put your reputation out there and extend, um, you know, your identity to in a sense. Got it. Yeah. But the main problem here uh, for many startup founders, they're debating if they should start fundraising now, should they wait till they have traction? Should they wait until they are, mentioned in some big media resource like TechCrunch. I mean, yeah, TechCrunch, sorry. <laughs> I think the way, the best way that I, um, so I had this, uh, I remember I was an entrepreneurship class back at Cornell in like freshman year, I think. And there was a, there was a guy who had started a few companies and he came and like guest spoke. And I think the best way that he framed it is 
do you have a problem that money would solve? And if it's like just coming up with an initial product idea or getting your first customers, those are not money problems. Like that, that's not something that, you know, having money is going to actually drive success. Like you can certainly take other people's money to like, you know, pay for your, you know, rent and stuff, but that's sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, that pe- investors don't want to hear that. Like I'm not, <laughs> n- nobody, people want to know that they're investing in something that's, you know, being built to solve a problem. They don't want to just like, oh, well, I'll take all the risk as the investor. And then you just go see if this thing will work that, you know, if it works great, if not, you know, it's all my, my cost. So I, I think, um, you know, you really, I think that framing of like, Hey, do we have, do we have a problem that like, you know, it's actually uh, money is the bottleneck here, or is there something else that the bottleneck that we could go do here instead? Like, uh, you know, lots of great stories of, you know, rapid prototyping or um, if it's obviously if it's something like medical device or biotech or something like in the industrial hard tech stuff that I'm doing, like there's there's hard science that you do need money to like build a research team and have lab space and that sort of stuff. But, you know, what what can you do along the way to validate um, Mm -hmm. your thesis, your thesis in a sense, building a company is a thesis on the future. Right. Absolutely. And I was wondering what's so I know for sure that most investors like to invest in people they know or in people that their friends know. So warm introductions. So I was wondering, does it make sense for someone in a startup world to start not fundraising necessarily, but building that relationship with the investors really early on? So as soon as I came up with an idea, let's say I validated it just a little bit, you know, I felt that something is coming. I got a tiny bit of traction. Should I start reaching out to angel investors and asking like, hey, I'm building that and this. Uh, we're not in the fundraising process yet, but do you want to keep in touch, you know, that once I'm in the right phase for you, I'll, uh, I'll reach out to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think that's really critical, actually. So I, uh, I mean, I guess I never proactively did that. And I guess I have some regrets around that. It took me <laughs> 11, 11 years or so to kind of build up to what we're doing now. And it probably could have happened faster if i was better at sort of reaching out to people but um ultimately people invest in other people that they trust so there's a there's a certain thing that, you know it's and it's very busy like everybody who's an investor out there like always often has uh you know a thousand options of where to put their money but uh but at the end of the day money is is also a commodity in a sense because it's it's kind of the same from all sources um but if you think of, okay, go reach out to people to build trust. Like if you frame it from a building trust perspective, then it's like, okay, I'm going to go tell people, here's what I think and here's what I'm going to go do. And then I'll come back and I'll, you know, show you that I've done it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's, uh, it's kind of the, the op- in my view, like some people, you hear about this like fake it till you make it stuff. And I just right. think that's, I just think that's such BS. Like almost every uh-huh. single person that i know who has followed that as a mantra it's like oh you got to fake till you make it that's that's how all of the disaster stories start i mean just (laughs) you know look at like theranos or there's like a very long list i'm kind of a i'm I'm kind of a connoisseur of like failures i like to learn from all the failures that happen so i can you know avoid them as much as possible but um yeah so i think you you know putting yourself out there is is a really great way to build trust. Like if you go say, Hey, like, here's what we're going to do over the next two years. Like, you know, maybe it won't work, but like, here's, 
you know, mm-hmm. here's a risk, here's a risk I'm going to go take and I'm going to like eat my own cooking and, you know, spend my time and resources on it instead of just getting a job somewhere or maybe I'll do it alongside having a job if your employer allows that. Then I think that anything that you can do to build trust and follow through on what you say and be transparent when you have mm-hmm. mistakes you learn from, that's that's all really valuable. Right, absolutely. And if someone who is listening to this right now wants to follow fake it till you make it rule, please check out this movie called Fire Festival. It's the story <laughs> is, I mean, yeah, Ryan, I can feel that you saw that movie. So you know what I'm talking about. But seriously, yeah, the movie is epic. The movie is epic. It's fun. It's uh, relatable sometimes, especially if you work in the startup world long enough. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, check it out for sure. I'll probably leave a link to that, to at least to YouTube video on uh, on that movie. But <laughs> I got off the track a little bit. But let's get back on it and discuss your specific preferences. So I felt that you mostly invest in larger companies so that have already built something. And do you invest in earlier stage companies? So do you act as angel investor as well, as long as uh, parallelly to Mason Capital? I, so not really. I mean, I'm I'm really more of an entrepreneur, business builder. We'll invest in other things that are strategically related to what we're doing. But you know, I would say we're we're super focused on things that are you know bringing intelligence um, into kind of the built world and the industrial world. So like kind of uh, things that relate to software motor company mm-hmm. in, in in some sense or some of these like older. Um, industries where there's new technology, you know, I'm, I'm certainly interested in talking to people, but I wouldn't consider us like a typical kind of venture fund. Like we don't, we don't invest in very many things. Definitely not a regular venture fund for sure. <laughs> but you, I believe like as a, as a person who I think has uh, something on LinkedIn saying like a venture fund or investing, I don't remember exactly what was that, but that was something that made me reach out to you and invite you to the podcast. But how many such invitations do you get? I mean, not specifically to podcasts, but, uh, you know, requests from founders to check their pitch deck, to give them some feedback on the pitch deck, or maybe even, you know, cold outreach just to invest. And they're just saying you their pitch deck without you even asking them for that. How often does that happen to you? Yeah, I mean, not not a lot. I mean, I'm really not out there as like a, sh- a shingle angel investor. I mean, we're we're more in industry commercially, and so we'll we'll more reach out to other companies that we think are, you know, really um, interesting and strategically aligned with what we're working on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm pretty focused on like software motor company and things in its orbit. Let's say, absolutely. So you said you mentioned a lot strategically. Uh, feasible for for your for software more company and that you reach out to the other companies that are you know, fit for a software more company but what exactly do you do with them do you try to acquire them do you try to you know just try to build a partnership there or how, how does this work yeah it really depends i mean we've made a number of strategic uh, you know investments in early stage companies that we think there's you know there's a mutual benefit um that you know we could help them get to market faster and that we could uh, help give them a competitive advantage. So, um, so, so that's kind of the focus. Like, where is their mutual benefit? You know, beyond just just money. I mean, if we just bring money, that's not interesting. Um, that's not, that's just not our game. I mean, there's other people, right. enough other people that do that. Right, absolutely. And I've seen a lot of startup founders who are trying to aim for you know such a strategic acquisition or a strategic partnership, like you're talking about, from a 
basically day one that I've seen on the page decks, like uh, super early stage founders saying like, hey, uh, Toyota is developing that. And we believe that we can develop this and then we'll get acquired in five years. I'm like, do you think that in five years, Toyota will not find someone for that role already? So do, what, what do you think about this part of, uh, of playing? Do you think it does make sense to aim for an exit so early on? I, I actually think that's like pretty crazy. So I think <laughs> thinking about the exit when you're just getting started is just a terrible idea. I think you want to be focused on like what is the problem, and ultimately, if you if you can solve a hard problem and build a viable business, then you're going to have many options to exit. Whether that's you know IPO, secondary market acquisition to a financial or a strategic, uh, you know, there's lots of lots of money looking for good businesses to buy like that's that's not a problem um there's a there's a number of businesses that you hear about and actually like just recently there's this one as a cautionary tale with harry's so we've all heard dollar shave club and harry's was sort of the competitor quite similar and the ftc just blocked their acquisition so you know if, if your business requires an acquisition because you're sort of playing the like evil Knievel game where it's like, Hey, we're just going to, we're going to be super unprofitable. But once we get to the other side of this, <laughs> you know, ramp, then there's a, some big company that's going to acquire us. You're, you're just taking, you're just taking a lot more risk, I think, than you need oh, to, yeah. um, you know, just like anything, if you're creating a future that's dependent on other people to, you know, make a decision, uh, in your benefit, like you're just exposing yourself to big risk there. Absolutely. So before we move on to uh, the discussion of a uh, self-remore company fundraising process, because I'm really curious about that part, I was also curious about your experience at Cornell. So Cornell is probably one of the best universities in the US and in the world. So I'm wondering what resources were you leveraging when you were back in uh, Cornell in terms of uh, startup uh, entrepreneur it was back in the days were there any resources and how do you think that changed so how how much how many resources do those top universities provide to its uh you know, potential future entrepreneurs yeah it's a good question yeah cornell certainly on the i was an engineer so the engineering side is certainly one of the best in the world um like you know there's lots of great uh great other colleges within within cornell but you know, honestly, I I really didn't take advantage of it the way that I should have. I mean, this is maybe a bit of a regret for history. I mean, like I said, first I was totally focused on on cycling and, and racing and everything more than kind of the you know kind of business world until I uh, until I went into my master's, I guess. But um, I don't know. I always had like a bit of a chip on my shoulder, honestly, through through university where I sort of had this like you know networking is like icky and I need to you know, do, this is a probably very typical engineering physics <laughs> and science guy mindset where it's like, oh, I need to just prove everything objectively and I need to, you know, just stand on the merits and like go make the best, you know, objective product and then everybody will beat down my door. And so I, I, I don't think I got very good at really leveraging any of those resources until, you know, a lot later when I kind of, you know, be, became, I, I, I say I got like a lot of, you know, hair on my chest or something, a lot of experience, like building my first, my first company, which Cornell was actually our first big customer. So video note, we would record and index the lectures so people could study, you know, the parts of the topics that they had trouble with. So Cornell was, it was great to, you know, be able to stay there after I graduated my master's and 
and you know build a company again for a problem that I was really passionate about because I had to miss class mm -hmm. all the time for for sports stuff. So um, by capturing the lectures and indexing it, we could you know make it. Uh, we, I don't know. We had many hundreds of students emailing us saying like, "Oh, this saved my life," mm -hmm. and you know I would have failed the course without it. So um, so it was it was pretty cool. But I didn't kind of get smarter until later, I think, to really. <laughs> Um, try to build those connections with people. I was too kind of heads down on just, you know, building um, uh, on kind of the science side of things. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't do it the way that you, or you should do it. So I'd say it's a lot better to, to focus on building those connections earlier. Absolutely. And speaking of building those connections early on, I am, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in a good network. Not that like you should go to all of those networking events because I hate people who go to too many networking events. And sometimes I hear like, oh, I have I know, 25,000 connections on LinkedIn. Like no one, no one cares. Literally no one cares about your 25,000 connections. So question is, how do you build the good relationship? Where do you find those people? Especially if you're early stage start founder, you don't really have much value to give to those people who have money or you know well well connection good connections how should you build that relationship with them if you can't really provide them any any value um so I, I guess i would dispute that you can't provide people value so if you really can't provide anybody value then they're not going to give you very much time so you know that's kind of the key is like if you're going to build connections with people there you, you have to figure out how can you project value and you know, that could just be information or insight about something that, you know, you're, you're pretty sure. And I'm not the world's best networker or something by any means. I'm sure you have other guests that can answer this a whole lot better. But, um, yeah, I mean, just just being really genuine and like trying to contribute value. I think the the thing like you go to any any event I just remember from college, like there's this one event I went to that had networking in the title. And it's just like everybody looking for a job. And it's like, OK, well, that's, you know. <laughs> like go to a go to a, a a dance and it's like all guys or something. It just you know, like it's not super interesting. Um, not yeah. sure to that, but it's you know. Anyway, that's uh, so you got to figure out how can you project value and contribute in some way. I think is um, don't don't be just asking for stuff. Right. Yeah. I, uh, that that comparison. I really enjoyed that because I couple of times I went to the networking events. I've never done that same mistake again, but. Basically, I went there and every single person was looking for a damn job. And then I met with a guy. I'm like, hey, so what do you do? And he's like, hey, I'm a, I work for Venture Capital. I'm like, oh, so you're not looking for a job. And he's like, oh, you're not looking for a job too? I'm like, no. Then, then we became best friends. Oh, <laughs> yeah, cool. the, 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 the point stays the same. Uh, be aware of those, those events. Uh, make sure that you provide value. That was a good advice. And let's move on to the part where we discuss a little bit of fundraising process for software model companies. So are you actually involved in that process or not, not really? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's part of what I do. So that's, that's great. That's great. Uh, great to know. And how do you manage to raise so much money? So how does this work? So most, most of my speakers are either early stage founders or uh, founders. I think the most, capital that someone raised among my founder speakers it was 30 30 something million and you're at 80 so how do you manage to raise so much uh well uh, i mean it's not all at once right so it's like incrementally like you um this model of uh tell people what your 
what you're going to do and then do it and rinse and repeat that, uh, it sort of builds trust over time. So, you know, a few years ago we raised like 15 million and, you know, our most recent one that we announced, um, for November was about 25 million and we brought in some new great strategic investors too, like BMW and JLL, the big property manager. So, um, you know, they wouldn't, though a lot of the people that invested more recently, uh, the new people at least, like they, they wouldn't have invested that kind of money in the early days. It took us time to build that credibility and to, you know, solve these problems internally, both building the product and then proving that we could, um, you know, build the product and then validate it. You know, we, the, the product for electric motors is a very high reliability. It's kind of like a medical device in that sense where you sort of need, even once it works, you know, in principle, you need to get a whole con- lots of certifications from mm-hmm. third parties before you can really get people to buy it at scale. Right. And so going through these different milestones, but sort of laying out that future pathway, like, hey, here's here's what we're going to accomplish over the next two years. And like, here's the customers that we're going to bring in and like the proof points we're going to get. And then just, you know, keep communicating that and delivering that. And then people, um, you know, again, like, how do you, you raise a lot? Like you have a really big, important problem that you are solving and it's very hard to solve and other people aren't doing it. I mean, that's. That's what creates value uh, for a company ultimately. Um, but yeah, that building trust by executing well is so it's really important. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right here. And here, I was actually curious: how did you raise money in terms of where did you get the money from? So, for example, I really like to speak about alternative sources of capital. So, just showing entrepreneurs that there is something else out there besides angel money and VC money. So. Do you raise mostly through VCs or do you also take alternative sources of capital? And I, I remember that you mentioned that you raised some money from uh, BMW. So those were strategic investors. But- yeah, so we're we're in like uh, definitely not the standard VC world. So we're, a, you know, a software enabled hardware. Um, so the, the kind of the VC world, the typical VC world really is very software focused. And a lot of them have been burned on hardware in the past because mm-hmm. uh, hard, hardware is hard as they say um and you know there really is a fundamental shift happening now that hardware is beginning to become defined by software so this sim- things like simulation based design and iot are really changing um changing what it means to be a hardware company into much more like a software company like software motor company has a balance sheet that looks like a software company i mean we have very minimal capex we don't we're not like Tesla where you have to build a huge factory, which is, I think, one of the things people are kind of scared of. Yeah. But but uh, which obviously they've been successful. But, you know, the, even with Tesla, the amount of dilution the original investors had was pretty staggering um, because of that that huge capital requirement uh, there for the factory. But uh, in terms of of, you know, sources of capital. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't we definitely don't have like the typical kind of Sand Hill Road capital and. Uh, the, the most valuable investors for us are are really like these strategic companies like BMW, like JLL, that can also serve as customers to break us into these markets because the products we have are very uh, demanding in terms of like reliability and proof points. So to have that first customer who's willing to drive adoption, um, it, it's the single hardest 
customer to get is your first customer. Once you get your first one, then you can, you know, have a reference and you can sort of point, have other people point to it. There's other people want to, you know, not be the first guinea pig. Um, so those have been really valuable. And then the rest are, you know, we have a lot of really smart entrepreneurs. I would say actually we have a number of investors that are the individuals um, that, you know, have made a lot of money running venture firms or private equity firms over time. And they, they just kind of personally, um, you know, appreciate what we're doing. So, yeah, I would say it's kind of more like the high net worth and family office, um, typically quite sophisticated people who have, you know, been entrepreneurs, been operators or, or been investors, professional investors themselves. That's really interesting. I'm actually trying to discover this topic of family offices more and more as this as family offices actually join the venture. I mean, the startup community more and more, especially here in the United States and specifically in California. But we will not shift it to that topic for now. Instead, we will have last question and we'll wrap it up. So I, I'm trying to do this you know, so, sort of call to action thing for my listeners right now who are listening to this episode. As soon as this episode is over, what one thing do you want them to do? So you mentioned, uh, for example, building network. You mentioned getting this first customer. So what's that one thing that you want them to do as soon as the episode is over? Uh, the one thing you should do, I don't know, wa wash your hands. It's COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's too easy. Do it from the heart. You know, it just, it depends what your goals are. I mean, I would say uh, figure out what you have that's really valuable and interesting to other people. I mean, if you're trying to, if you're trying to fundraise, like what is it that, why are you passionate about solving the problem that you're, that you're solving and how are you going to see it through all the obstacles over the next five plus years of, of mm -hmm. building it. Right. The passion. Why? Oh, keep, keep going. I mean, the, yeah, I just, I mean, in, in terms of like what, what stands out, I mean, just especially the single most important question for me, especially if it's anything to do with technology that I think people don't answer enough um, is why didn't this happen before? Because if you're if you're proposing, hey, I'm going to go do something, um, whether you know, for me it was this uh, th the one like fun thing I did. You mentioned Belichka, so B E L I C H K A. It's dot uh, com is the website. It's uh, I eat keto, like no carb, and uh, it's it's very hard or it's impossible to find anything on the market that's like actually healthy and natural. They'll put all these additives and like sugar alcohols and stuff in it. So, so I just made this thing with my wife as like kind of a fun project. So we actually just, just launched it. So in that case, you know, why did nobody make like a keto bar made out of like all natural cacao butter and like healthy stuff. And it's like, well, it's like way easier to make it out of a much lower cost, uh, sort of easy to, manufacturer type ingredients so we actually had to invent like a whole bunch of of processes to make this stuff so it's not like a normal granola bar that there's like standard machines at contract manufacturers to make them we actually had to like solve a number of hard problems and it's you know more expensive to to make this but you know i just really wanted it to exist so so that's an example like hey why didn't something happen before in the case of like software motor company which is a much harder technology problem obviously uh, you just simply didn't have enough computing power before. So people had tried. Everybody, any, anybody who says just nobody thought of this before, that's like the, that's like the worst possible answer because everybody has thought of everything. Yep. <laughs> like there's no, you know, this whole, there's no new, nothing new under the sun. It's, um, 
it's kind of true and it's it's not that there's no value in having new ideas but having an idea is like 0.001% of the way there so so anybody um anybody who's like really secretive about some idea they're working on i just think that's really silly i think it's you know if there's an action i would recommend then is like whatever your idea is just put it out there for the world um the odds of somebody stealing it are like zero because it's all in the execution and you're going to get you're going to get so much value in the feedback and like getting different perspectives and and information to beat it up it's uh you know i think that i think that being sort of transparent is really valuable and i get kind of irked when people are you know cagey or secretive (laughs) yeah i feel you i really feel and it's funny that you mentioned it because literally Two days before this interview, I released the episode called Stealth Mode Equals Stealth Money. And the, the founder there, he actually sold his company as well pretty recently. He was talking about the exact same thing. No one cares about your idea. Idea is basically nothing. It's all about execution. So you're absolutely right here. And on this fun note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Ryan, for coming up. And for sharing your experience, I really like learning a lot about software more company and how you dealt with that. And also, it was really nice for me to learn that uh, you're raising a lot through family office. I'm, I'm happy to hear those news. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Ryan. And stay safe out there. It's COVID, as you said. Thanks. And eat, eat low carb. Buy, buy Belichka bars. <laughs> I will leave the link to that, by the way. I will leave link to Belichka in the description of this episode. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a coupon code uh, a Keto20 for anybody who's listening here. Perfect. I will leave the link to that uh, to Belichka and to Fire Festival in case if someone forgot. <laughs> so definitely take a look at the episode description and you'll find tons of fun stuff there.